The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. Welcome to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis. I am your host, Stephen Heiner. And I am joined today by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn and Father Anthony Chicada. Your Excellency Father, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Uh, We are going to be covering quite a few topics today. We're going to start with uh, Francis's first 100 days. And then we're going to move on to talk about uh, privacy and government buying issues, which have become particularly timely here in the United States. And then we're going to talk about a topic that's always been Timely, but even more so worth revisiting uh, end-of-life issues and euthanasia. And I guess, Your Excellency and Father, why don't we start by going back to our show that we did on Francis, which was our most listened-to show ever um, on, on the Restoration Radio Network. And do you think that you were optimistic, not optimistic enough, pessimistic, not pessimistic enough? What do you think your assessment was at the time, how does it line up with the realities of right now? So you're asking whether we were prophets or just pundits, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I suppose, yeah. I think we were definitely prophets, although we didn't know enough. (laughs) Uh, That's that's right, because the uh, thing that seemed obvious uh, right away and uh, that I think we got right is the idea of the downgrading of the the, the papacy that uh you know uh, dialing it uh, down in terms of the dignity of the office he didn't wear the correct vestments right away and uh, the way he addressed the familiar way he addressed the congregation uh that was assembled in St. Peter's Square and i think that those were we correctly guessed those things as indicators of what was to come uh, that uh, on the basis of that, and then on the basis of his past performance in um, Argentina, that mm-hmm. he definitely was one who is going to knock the prestige of the papacy, at least uh, in terms of the authority of the office, down quite a bit. Yeah, he constantly refers to himself as the Bishop of Rome, and I don't think he has ever, uh, I have never seen him refer to himself as the Pope, but he is always emphasizing, in any case, Bishop of Rome. And that is that puts up red flags, because although the Pope is the Bishop of Rome, uh, as we said in our last interview, that is something that is pleasing to both schismatics and heretics, that uh, he can claim to be Bishop of Rome, but he can't claim the uh, universal jurisdiction over the whole church, which is to be the Pope. So uh, this obsession with Bishop of Rome is something uh, very alarming. For example, in the uh, in the yearbook, the Annuario Pontificio that came out, the he presents himself on the first page as Bishop of Rome, and then you turn over the page and you find out all of the other things he is, such as Vicar of Christ. Now, it doesn't make any sense in the world if you're the Vicar of Christ on earth that you would put Bishop of Rome first and as as your main title, because Vicar of Christ on Earth is something that goes far beyond Bishop of Rome. Uh, so uh, he, he, you see an agenda there. He definitely has that on, on his head. Yeah you, yeah, you do, because if you look, say, in the past issues of the book, yeah, sure, the uh, Pope's the first title, 
that the popes put them down, themselves down as was Bishop of Rome, but then uh, you had everything else listed. You had Vicar of Jesus Christ, successor of the Prince of the Apostles, all the other stuff. But apparently in the new one, that's just sort of moved. Yes. So that's yes. a signal. Yes, and many other references that could be cited for that, too. Uh, so that's definitely, uh, this, uh, you know, something that has been fulfilled. And uh, his general downgrading of the papacy by what he wears and what he doesn't wear and, uh, it, you know, are other indications of it. What, you don't, you don't like the iron pectoral cross, Your Excellency? Yes, you know, that and the this, all this cult of being poor. Uh, his uh, humility on display of being poor and simple and disparaging those who uh, do not follow him, which is a typical sign of pride and of bitter zeal, uh, you know, having contempt. Uh, he recently, I, I, I don't know if you saw, but recently he showed that contempt for people that he has by not showing up at a Beethoven concert, which had been planned months ahead, and which was actually meant as some sort of celebration of the year of faith, uh, and at which uh, he was uh, supposed to be. And uh, when they, when he didn't show up, they came to him and knocked on his door, and he said, well, uh, you know, I'm not some Renaissance prince that listens to music when he should be working, which was a really nasty comment. And there you can see the picture of the empty chair while everybody else, it looks like the whole court of the Vatican and various dignitaries and, and, and people invited. It was a big thing. There's the empty chair because he has this sort of a contempt. He, he, he barks out these contemptuous comments about people, and uh, he's not a nice man. All of those things have to do with symbols, with symbolism, the idea of... Uh, a pope sitting through a concert that's given in his honor in the honor of a, a big occasion uh, that's going along with something like that is part of the graciousness that the office is uh, supposed to have uh, so you know if you fool with symbols like that um, that definitely conveys uh, a message you know he uh, certainly he understands symbols that they stand for something else, and he's using them in such a way uh, as to show that he wants to change or alter the meaning or the teaching behind them. You know, so he has an uh, he wears an iron cross. I mean, it's okay if you're Bismarck, you know, to wear an iron cross, <laughs> but uh, when you're the Pope, it's supposed to be something a little more elegant. Yes. Uh, you know, I thought you, your April newsletter from the seminary, and if you want to get the seminary newsletter, all you have to do is contribute at least $75 a year, and we'll tell you how to do that at the end of the show. But I thought your April newsletter, your Excellency, was a very good um, exposition of several different acts of Francis that were um, disturbing, maybe is not a strong enough word. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, he's... Um uh, manifesting a great many, uh, 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 he's showing that he's uh, uh, a '70s liberal. That's what he's showing himself as. He, he, he's a, a 1970s liberal Stalinist, which means he wants to see the Vatican Council uh, and all of its changes shoved down the throat of everyone, 
and uh, he's going to insist on that. And he really has, uh, he's showing a great deal of contempt and, and nasty remarks about traditionalists. He has no use for them whatsoever. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's something that's very clear. One, one of the uh, Vaticanistas, one of the commentators, uh, probably Sandro Magister, I think, said that uh, his management style is basically to listen but is to give orders. When he decides something, there is no uh, dissuading him from it. And he gives the impression uh, as uh, you know, one who will operate that way. So it'll be very, very interesting to follow to see what he he does end up doing as the Stalinist liberal. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, he. Uh, it, I brought up the fact that he, when in Argentina, actually permitted a homosexual couple to adopt a child, uh, and this was um, said by Leonardo Buff, who, uh, with whom he's quite friendly, according to Buff. I mean, if we can believe Buff. I think we can. Uh, uh, he was very emphatic about it. There was no denial on the part of the Vatican that he actually permitted a homosexual couple to adopt a child. And as I pointed out, this is essentially to consign the child to hell, apart from some special grace of God, because the child will learn that perversion is something that is legitimate. Uh, he will be corrupted very, very deeply by that, uh, and uh, he'll grow up thinking that, that perversions are, are in accordance with the divine law. Uh, so uh, that's a very serious thing, uh, very, very grave uh, 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 corruption of Catholic doctrine and Catholic morality. Uh, the man is, is a real, uh, real liberal and a uh, real modernist. And then he, uh, of course, declared war on the uh, traditionalists, comparing them to the people who uh, uh, stoned St. Stephen in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, which I, I thought, when I read it, I just could not believe that he's saying such a thing. Uh, and uh, uh, that these, you know, that they are uh, hard-headed and, and stiff-necked and all sorts of things. If you read what St. Stephen said to the uh, Sanhedrin, uh, it's not exactly complementary at all to the traditionalists. And, and you, if you put this together with many other things he has said, you can tell that he has a hatred, uh, and I would say an obsessive hatred, for Catholic tradition. He, he, uh, I'm sure you saw the uh, business recently of his calling Pelagians the people who were saying rosaries for him. Uh, he got a, a spiritual bouquet from uh, some what he calls restorationists. That means people like us, people who want to see Catholicism, you know, Roman Catholicism, uh, and and he calls them restorationists. He got a spiritual bouquet in which over three thousand rosaries were promised to him, and he calls this Pelagian. This is Pelagianism, like a heresy, a fifth century heresy, and that this is creeping in the church, and he's concerned about it. Now, I mean, if you step back a minute and you think, I mean, what what kind of a world does this man live in? Here, the, the whole church is falling apart, just completely falling apart, and he's concerned about traditionalists on their knees saying rosaries, and he's calling that Pelagianism, which has it has nothing to do with Pelagianism. <laughs> so it shows that he's ignorant of church history, ignorant of theology, 
and that he has this on the brain, uh, these horrible people who would dare to to say all these rosaries for me and to multiply rosaries. How terrible. <laughs> you know, it, it's like he's a nut. I mean, well, there's, there's the uh, There's the other 60s coded language that uh, sort of got my antenna going. Where he, he <laughs> they got the antenna twitching. Uh, he, he used the word triumphalism. Yes, and if you yes. lived through the 60s and the 70s, you knew that the liberals were always denouncing triumphalism, the idea yes. of the triumph of the Catholic faith, uniqueness, uh, and so on. Yes. So yes. he, uh, when he's uh, comparing the uh, traditionalist to St. Stephen, uh, he's condemning triumphalism, which he says isn't from the, uh, isn't from the Lord. And so he goes on about this. Uh, in connection with those who uh, reject uh, or who who show hesitations about Vatican II, uh, uh, he, he reminds me of the the faculty uh, members uh, in the modernist seminary. I mean, all the same stuff is coming out. It's like a time machine. Yes, and he's from that era. He was born in 1935. That means in 1965 he was 30. Uh, so that means he was uh, active and modernized and liberal already in the 1960s, and, and that's his world. And he's imposing it in the same way that all they did, in, all of them did in the 1960s. It's that same spirit. You can see it. Uh, and that's why I say, what world is he living in? I mean, hasn't he seen in the past 50 years that the whole thing has fallen apart? At least Ratzinger saw that Vatican II was failing, and he was trying to do something about it. At least he had the, the children of, of this, uh, of the children of darkness, are more are more wise in their own generation than the children of light. That uh, he the uh, he was trying to save it by connecting it to traditionalism, uh, but this one just thinks that everything is just wonderful, and all we need is is more modernism and, and more liberation theology. And, yeah, that, that's that's the hope of the future. What what was really a, a, a trip in the time tunnel for me, and probably for you too, Your Excellency, was something that was a remark of his that was not uh, emphasized or widely reported uh, by uh, many news sources. It was his discussion of the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. Oh yes. Now uh, it. Uh, it was interesting. There are different versions of his, or different accounts of this that uh, appeared in different language versions of the Vatican news services and the Catholic news services. But the drift that I got from one of them, which I think is the, the, the Spanish uh, news service, Spanish or Italian, I forget exactly which, was that the uh, miracle of the loaves and the fishes was not magic. The idea that he wanted to emphasize is the real miracle consisted in the sharing and in charity. Mm-hmm. And th- this was, uh, again, the antenna we're twitching, because uh, this is precisely the sort of uh, explanations that we were given in the 60s and the 70s to denature miracles, to say that you didn't have, our Lord didn't have a real uh, multiplication of loaves and fishes, the only supernatural thing was that he inspired uh, charity in uh, uh, people on that particular occasion, and they brought out the sandwiches that uh, they had brought along with them and shared them with others who didn't have them. 
Yes, uh, and that business of magic is very typical of the 60s, that that a miracle is, uh, any account of of a miracle is termed magic. Now, Bergoglio explicitly denied that there was a multiplication, that there was, uh, that he took fish and multiplied them, or took loaves of bread and multiplied them. He explicitly denied that. And yet that is the word that is always used and has been always used by Catholic tradition. And then you ask, well, you know, why can't Christ do this? If he's the creator of the universe, why couldn't he multiply a fish or a loaf of bread? What's the problem? Why do you object to that? Why does that pose a problem for your conscience? And the answer is that these people, don't, these modernists, don't have the Catholic faith. They don't really believe that he is God. They, they, because they object to any kind of miracle that, that is assigned to him. The only miracles they'll believe are the ones that JP2 does. Uh, and uh, to get himself canonized, you know, even though you can kiss Korans and, and do very, you know, offer snakes to pagan gods and things like that, you can perform miracles. Those are, are absolutely true, or blessed, you know, the so-called blessed John the Twenty-Third. You know, uh, those are, are hard fact miracles. Anything to to bless the the undertaking of the Novus Ordo and make it look credible. But that Christ could multiply a fish? Oh my goodness, no! Oh, that's impossible. See, that's their mentality. For, for those of you who are just joining us, um, you are listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis on the Restoration Radio Network. Our guest today, His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Father Anthony Chicada. Um, on the first part of our show today, we're just we're talking about uh, Francis's first 100 days. If you have questions or particular observations you found. Uh, during this time period, you can give us a call. Our telephone number is 949-272-9417. Again, that's 949-272-9417. If you want to skip the phone line, you can leave us a question on Twitter. We are at True Restoration, and we can take your call there. I was going to say, maybe you're being a bit unfair to to Francis. He does want to restore, he is a restorationist, he wants to restore ugly vestments, impoverished (laughs) liturgies, uh, the theology of De Lubac. In fact, there was a quote from a sermon this Sunday, uh, which was sent to us by one of our listeners. He says, the church, uh, he wants to restore the church, he says, a church without ideology, without a life of its own, the church, which is the Mysterium Lunae, which is a phrase of De Lubac. Crazy Looney? Mysterious crazy, <laughs> crazy person? Crazy oh, loony. no, excuse me. That's the ICEL translation of that. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then he goes on to say, which has light from her bridegroom and diminish herself so that he may grow. So the church should Holy. diminish herself so that Christ may grow. I mean, there's so many things wrong with that, Your Excellency. I don't know if we... You know where to start. <laughs> I uh, I have to say that I'm flabbergasted. That's so, that's so absolutely crazy. The church without ideologies, without a life of its own, the church which is the Mysterium Lunae, which has light from her bridegroom so that she can diminish herself so that he may grow. That's a dogma-free a church without ideology sounds like a code word, doesn't it? It you means dogma. Dogma. Yeah, dogma. Christianity, that's what it means. 
and that's that's the goal is is a church without dogma. That's the goal of ecumenism and of modernism. And you what about that concept of the church diminishing herself? Is that how does that work? (laughs) Contrary to everything that's in Catholic dogma and theology, the Catholic Church is the mystical body of Christ. It is the kingdom of God on earth. How could it want to diminish itself when it promotes itself, when it, when it grows, it is glorifying Christ. The purpose of the church is the glory of Christ. So as it grows, as it saves souls, as it gathers more souls into its fold, it is glorifying Christ, uh, who is the savior of those souls. That's the unique reason for his coming. So the church extends the mission of Christ in, in, in redemption as it is the extension of the incarnation of Christ in its being it's his mystical body. So you have both of those great mysteries extended over time in the Catholic Church. To say that the Church must recede or must in some way become less is to actually say that Christ must recede or become less. Uh, it, but but it's you, I think it's all tied up with his Church of the Poor business, though. Uh, he, he said recently that the Gospel is drug addicts, and uh, and poor people, people with nothing to eat. That's the gospel. As saying that the old rule is not the gospel, referring to pre-Vatican II. The old rule is not the gospel. He says that drug addicts and, and poor people, that's the gospel. Uh, I, I think that he is, he cannot get himself out of the slums. He is convinced that that is Christianity, is to be handing out sandwiches in slums or doing whatever he does in slums. And that anything else, any kind of insistence on dogma, anything else the church does is insignificant and stupid. Uh, I think mm. that is Bergoglio. Uh, that he, he's a, he should have been the head of the Salvation Army. Because the Salvation Army accomplishes much better than the Catholic Church the handing out of sandwiches and clothing and everything like that that he thinks is, is the gospel. Uh, so I, I think you, know, you have to read that w- in that context. What a shocking statement, though. <laughs> I mean, there's so many errors in that. Uh, I'm struck nearly speechless. Yes. I, I think that you can see why he hates traditionalists. They are ideologues. They stand for everything that he hates in the church. And and that's why he, he he is you know upset by the fact that these restorationists would offer rosaries for him like that that is on his brain that that he would actually bring it up to these nuns in trousers, and really with no reason at all I mean that that this is a, a problem in the church that people are saying too many rosaries. <laughs> yeah, and, and yet, that dogma somehow so, and ideology uh, this prevents handing out the sandwiches to the poor. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that's the prism uh, through which I think he sees everything. Yes. It comes up over and over again. He said, the, the referring to the incarnation, that Christ becomes flesh in the poor, or the second person of the Blessed Trinity becomes flesh in the poor. He can't get it off his brain. I mean, he can't talk about even the incarnation without going back into the slum. Mm. And And... You know, it, it is a, an obsession with him. It's typical of liberation theologians, is that everything is, is poor people, 
and he's always criticizing Wall Street and, and every various other uh, commercial entities and people interested in the stock market and all. And certainly there's a lot to criticize there, but it's the way he criticizes it, as if making money and, and the per, pursuit of normal commerce is wrong. Uh, and, and that's very a very serious error. There's nothing wrong with people buying stock in companies uh, and mm. people making money. As a matter of fact, if the rich people didn't make money, there would be no one, no one to alleviate the sufferings of the poor. Or there would be nobody to help build seminaries. Right, and and do other th- well seminaries. That's dogma. Now you're all <laughs> way off. No, we should shut it down and set up a soup kitchen. That's what you know. And and we don't need to learn all that dogma and philosophy and all of that stuff. Uh, that's see, that's just see again, your excellency. Again, restoration. He's restoring the philosophy of Judah, the great right. apostle, uh, <laughs> meaning that we should sell sell our goods and give to the poor. I, I don't think you're being fair with him, your excellency. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So uh, uh, I think that another way to understand him is is, you ha- is that uh, obsession with liberation theology and Marxism, what is effectively you know, Christian Marxism. Uh, those things don't go together, but he puts them together. Uh, you ha- that you can see he has that on the brain. And you know, because the- of that... Uh, Go ahead, Father. I'm sorry. There, he drags an awful lot of other things along with it. That everything seems to take a, uh, a back seat to that. So the idea of him doing the uh, Muslim foot washing uh, in violation of their own rubrics, all of that stuff is in the back seat mm-hmm. because it's 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 the gospel of the poor, whatever that may mean, uh, that's in the front seat, or the um, uh, you know the some of the outrageous things that different prelates around him have said who, about uh, the, the question of the so-called gay marriages. One um, Vaticanist has said that uh, there have been uh, six prelates so far that he knows of who have come out basically in favor of it, and he listed them. One was uh, Marini, who is the former um, uh, papal master of ceremonies, who's the uh, president of some um, uh, pontifical committee, and then uh, the uh, Schoenborn, of course, in uh, Austria, a cardinal in Colombia, Cardinal Daniels. These people get away with it uh, because Bergoglio is not interested in it. It's a secondary issue to the. Secondary. Actually, I think he favors it. I think he at least secretly favors it, uh, and. Um he did it in Buenos Aires. The only thing that stopped him was that the Argentinian Novus Ordo bishops at least had the sense to say no to him. Yeah, he's he's. It's an issue he's not interested in particularly, but yeah. uh, you know, is is you know willing to allow. So yeah, yes. That's, uh, well, and you're actually the 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 foot washing. I mean, he um he did foot washing for two women, I think, uh, during the Mondi. And one of the women was a Muslim. One of the women was a Muslim. Yes, he hit, sort of hit two birds with one stone on that one. Uh, <laughs> well, it's you know it's ecumenism and it it is uh, feminism. It is uh, it is disregard for the traditions of the church. I and mean, what else can you say about it? Uh, and it's the combination of the modern world. Yes, 
because the modern society uh, with uh, their false values eats that sort of stuff up and promotes it because they say that the uh, um, all religions should get along. We all worship the same God. That uh, women have uh, been oppressed. Some of them will say that uh, Islam is a religion of peace. Uh, so I, I mean, it hits all of these different uh, uh, hits all of these different notes in terms of the va- false values of the modern world. It also sent a message to all of the conservatives that I'm going to do whatever I please. Uh, actually, it's very uh, despotic and authoritarian uh, for somebody who's such a modernist. But modernists have always been despotic and authoritarian, even though they hated the authority of the church. Uh, the, the authority of Pius XII was never so severe and overwhelming as the authority of the modernists. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so it, it was a message to everyone, that leave, leave me alone, I'm going to do whatever I please. Uh, and I think we're going to see more of that as time goes on. It's the same thing with the uh, with the uh, comment uh, on the Beethoven concert. You know, you, you can just uh, take your concert and do whatever you want with it. Uh, it's 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 a contemptuous, uh, flippant way of speaking to people and acting. Well, I mean, this has caused a lot of conversation in the blogosphere, and, and uh, we have a caller who has a question about, you know, people have different theories as to why. Uh, Francis is like this, and then there's, you know, we we have theories about the two Paul the Sixes, so I think the theory now is about the clueless Bergoglio. Um, so, Justin from Florida, go ahead with your question about this. Good evening, uh, Your Excellency and Father. Thanks for taking my phone call. Um, yeah. I'm speaking a lot with some of the adult types, and uh, it's interesting how they try and make excuses after excuses after excuses, but they're really devastated, you know, with this election of... of uh, uh, Bergoglio, and they keep saying, well, he's clueless, well, he's stupid, he's dumb, you know, he just doesn't get it. And I say, well, you know, is is he really stupid, or is he determined? I mean, I happen to think he's determined. I don't think he's stupid at all. I just he's think both. he doesn't... Really? <laughs> he's stupid and determined, yes. Yeah. <laughs> sorry to say. <laughs> Go ahead, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, no, no. That shows Bishop Sanborn's moderation. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) But, you know, know, it's interesting how these excuses will come up over and over and over and over again to try and somehow, you know, make themselves feel a little bit more comfortable with the situation. But it's really horrendous. As you heard in that quote, it's terrible. Yes, yes. Well, the the indult type, you know, and that covers a, a great many people, they see the the continuity of structure uh, from Vatican pre-Vatican II to post-Vatican II, they, that's the only thing they see. And they know that the Catholic Church cannot err and is indefectible, and therefore they, they struggle every single day in a type of misery with this problem, because as time goes on, they see more and more defection, more and more error. Uh, this is another milestone. They, it's, uh, if you think of a car going down a cliff, you know it has hit another rock on the way down with Bergoglio, and soon is going to blow up at the bottom. Uh, and they they de- deal with this in various ways, mostly by denial. Uh, well, he you know either he he's surrounded by an evil entourage, or in this case, as you say, he's not very intelligent, and uh, they they will 
resort to anything in order in order to preserve their model, which is that somehow or other the Catholic religion is being preserved by this structure that they see as as Roman Catholicism. And you know, there's nothing to do. Uh, you can't move them off of that. You, you know, if he came out naked on the on the Vatican, you know, on the balcony and said Christ isn't God and there's only one person in the Blessed Trinity, they would find some way of explaining that. If he said, I, I declare and define these things, they would still find a way out. You know, they, well, you know, he didn't feel good that day or something like that. He had his fingers crossed. Yeah, you know, all sorts of things. The, the, they had a gun to his head or... Uh, as Ratzinger said, it was the, the Vatican II's failure. I mean, he didn't say it so so bluntly as I'm saying, but he's saying he said effectively Vatican II's failure was because of the fact that the journalists messed it all up. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, maybe that he had to resign because he was going crazy or something. But and he said that right at the end. That, that that this is sort of his self absolution because it was the, those paparazzis or the or the the journalists that messed up the whole thing, and that the true Vatican II needs to come out after fifty years. It's been hiding, like in, yeah, in that same sentence. We, they tell we, me we too. We certainly understand uh, the uh, tendency of people who look at this mess to kind of make excuse for excuses for it in one sense. Because uh, all of us did that for a while with Paul VI. You figured, oh, you know, the Pope is uh, surrounded by all these wicked people, and if, if the Holy Father only knew, uh, etc. But uh, after a while, uh, it becomes so obvious that uh, what is going on is not Catholic, that you you turn your back on it, you stop making excuses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, reality has a way of breaking through. And, you know, some people do eventually get it, but there are very few, actually. Uh, you, the, the question, the fundamental question is this, is the religion that has emanated from Vatican II, is it Roman Catholicism? The three essential character or, or elements of religion are doctrine, liturgy, and discipline. And when you put the doctrine and liturgy and discipline of the post-Vatican II religion, does that conform to the, to the same things of the pre-Vatican II religion? That is the first question. Because the Catholic Church is a kingdom of truth before it is anything else, despite whatever Bergoglio would like to say about ideology. Before it is anything else, it is a kingdom of truth because it rests on faith. It rests on the act of faith of St. Peter, who said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. It rests upon the foundation of holy faith. And if it isn't the holy faith, then nothing else in it is of any use or good. And, you know, but if you start out with looking at, you know, the fact that they're still using the same chancery offices and they're still running around in the same cathedrals, if that's your point of departure, then you're going to end up in, in a terrible confusion. And um, for those of you who are calling in on the on Bergoglio and Francis, we'll take calls for another five minutes or so, uh, the telephone on that topic. That's 949-272-9417. Again, 949-272-9417. We have our troll screening device in place. 
uh, this time. Um, I wanted to speak to that that real Vatican II, Your Excellency. You know, it's been hiding for 50 years. I mean, maybe been hiding with the real Paul VI, right? Somewhere <laughs> yes. in the Vatican archives. Um, I wanted to read some quotes from John, one of John Venari's latest articles from Catholic Family News, and just sort of put them in context with what you've been talking about today. Um, he says, I've been following Pope Francis's words and actions and read the entire book on heaven and earth that he co-wrote with Rabbi Sforka. He seems to have a good heart and some good Catholic instincts, but theologically he is a train wreck, remarkably sloppy. And though this might shock some readers, I must say that I would never allow Pope Francis to teach religion to my children. Uh, he, he then goes on, he, he ends with, um, uh, well, he, here's another quote. He noted that Francis is not so much, National Catholic Reporter recently noted that Francis is not so much a Lumen Gentium Catholic, but a Gaudium et Spes Catholic. I think this, is, this assessment is correct. I see, <laughs> I see the need to step up our resistance to the Vatican II chaos is greater than ever since John Paul to Benedict XVI and now Pope Francis have more and more established the new orientation as the new norm. Too many of today's Catholics believe the spirit of Assisi and ecumenical gatherings constitute the true faith of Catholicism. Well, why would they believe that, John? Because you tell them that that's really the Pope. Um, yes. Any of those quotes that you want to talk about, Your Excellency or Father? Well, well I, I mean, he, yeah, go ahead, Father. Yeah, unwilling to uh, allow him to teach catechism to his children. I mean, uh, that's a pretty <laughs> damning condemnation for you know someone who is supposed to you know in, in, enjoy infallible authority. Right and and uh, in in union with whom the the bishops of the worlds are supposed to teach. So that gives you a, a major contradiction in terms of uh, Catholic ecclesiology. That he's he's uh, what he says is not trustworthy enough uh, for the office that he supposedly holds. It's more recognize and resist uh, that uh, these people they they would say these recognize and resist people would would some of them even say well he's a heretic and Vatican II is, has heresy in it they they might go so far as to say that but at the same time they will not apply the principle that is applied universally by Catholic theologians and by Catholic doctrine, and that is that the uh, Church cannot promulgate heresy, it cannot promulgate false doctrines, false liturgy, evil disciplines. It is contrary to her indefectibility, uh, to her assistance by the Holy Ghost. Uh, and they just ignore that. And so they, they continue to see all that as the Catholic hierarchy and then fall into an incredibly difficult knot of contradiction uh, and saying things like that, that I wouldn't let this person teach my children the catechism. I'm sorry, I have to laugh because they, they, it's, it just is absurd. The Pope cannot teach your children the catechism? Why not? Well, what, again, the, what kind of papacy the, the, do you end up with? <laughs> and, well, I, I've, heard, I've heard an article called referring to this as a cardboard pope, Father Chicada. I think that might be a good formulation. Yeah, some for troublemaker, it. I think, wrote that. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, but that's, that's truly what you end up with. It's a, it's a pope in name only who is not to be followed as regards his 
doctrine or as regards the discipline he lays down or as far as the mode of worship that he lays down. That all the three elements of the Catholic religion uh, can be ignored. That's what I, I think you that, end up with. I think a very good intellectual exercise that you kind of put me through some years ago, uh, Father, was when I was having conflicts with something like this. You, you made me substitute the vicar of Jesus Christ on earth in for any place where I might put one of these claimants. So say, the, the, if I would rephrase John Minari's statement, is I wouldn't allow the vicar of Jesus Christ on earth to teach religion <laughs> to my children. <laughs> and suddenly it sounds a whole lot worse than Francis. Well, it does. Uh, it sounds rebellious. It sounds Protestant. <laughs> and it, it sure does. You can do that with other formulations, too. When say, the Pius X Society speaks, speaks of the Roman authorities, that, uh, you know, we don't want to, uh, at this point, submit ourselves to the Roman authorities. We don't want to submit ourselves to the vicar of Jesus Christ on earth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. It's, now they it's, find it's these euphemisms. <clears throat> exactly. We have another caller, um, Steve from Idaho. Uh, his question is, will Bergoglio's flamboyant style uh, backfire and cause greater numbers for tradition? Is, is that a fair phrasing of your question, Steve? Yeah, yeah. I just wondered if his style would backfire on the modernist agenda and end up increasing our numbers. I think so. Uh, uh, one, another thing we haven't covered about Bergoglio is that he is a loose cannon. That he is capable of saying and doing outrageous things. And I personally think that they are very concerned about him. Uh, and when I say they, uh, the entourage and the the spirit of Ratzinger, that is, that this trouble in Vatican II and Vatican II is, is threatened by its failures and we have to do something in order to turn things around. That's what I mean by they. And uh, I think they are very, very concerned about him. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but he was effectively silenced by the entourage on May 30th with the announcement that uh, his off-the-cuff uh, speeches at, this, at the Daily Mass in Santa Marta would not be available to the press. Now, to me, uh, maybe I'm reading too much into it, uh, and, and Lombardi said, for fear that people may, take, may assign too much authority to what he says. Uh, that tells me that he's been shooting his mouth off, if, if he's following his, his pattern uh, up to now. He's been shooting his mouth off with all sorts of crazy things uh, in, the, in these homilies or, that he's giving in, uh, in the uh, daily mass, and nobody wants it to get out. Uh, so he was effectively silenced. Uh, but I, I think that, uh, yes, there's a very strong element, both in the Vatican and outside the Vatican, that is uh, uh, very, very concerned about him. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I know uh, certain Novosordo uh, priests, uh, they, uh, they're very, very concerned, and they say others like them are very concerned, and uh, that, that it's, it's uh, something that is out of control. Uh, and uh, I, I do think that uh, there's going to be some reaction to him, and also uh, I do think that he is going to, uh, yes, increase our numbers. People will wake up. 
uh, Ratzinger and actually JP2 and Ratzinger were the worst things for us because they always put on a, an air of conservatism or at least were portrayed that way. They were portrayed as conservatives. No one is portraying this one as a conservative. Uh, the press is, is delighted with him and is portraying him a, as a progressive. So, I, I, yes, uh, I think we're back to the days of Paul VI, uh, and uh, that uh, I do think our numbers will increase. And on top of it, even uh, attempting to uh, silence him, say, in the daily homilies, the guy seems to be so headstrong that uh, the people around him will not be able to control him. I think he's got that kind of uh, uh, personality. So he will uh, end up overcoming those particular barriers and doing and saying things that are uh, really outrageous. And that will, uh, I think, clarify things for a number of people, that this is the, the real face of Vatican II. I mean, just uh, as in point of fact, there was so much that came out in the past month to comment about. I had to do a double, uh, eight pages. Uh, I usually do four, but I had to do a double edition of my newsletter. I had to talk about so much that he said and did. Uh, and that did not occur under Ratzinger. Ratzinger was a much more careful person and also much more difficult to understand. This person, this Bergoglio, is very easy. <laughs> he says something. He says it very clearly. And uh, you know, so I, I think that uh, people will pick up on that and uh, will listen to us more uh, when we point out these things. One of the uh, last things I want to talk about before we transition to our other topics on today's show, Your Excellency and Father, is the whole gay lobby issue. Uh, it's probably somewhat timely given today's uh, Supreme Court ruling, but this whole issue of the, the gay lobby and the curia, is this something that uh, has just been around since Paul VI or, or earlier? Is it something that's new? What, what, uh, what can we take away from this whole situation? Well, I, I never heard that term before uh, the, describing the Vatican. I mean, there were various stories about this one and that one. But to say a lobby, uh, first of all, a lobby is a lobby in the Vatican. A lobby, by its very nature, is outside of something. So I think the word is poorly chosen. If you're inside, that means you're not in the lobby. The the word lobby comes from people who would wait for senators and congressmen to uh, come into the lobby of the Capitol where they would talk to them. And these were outsiders who would uh, get the ear of these people. So... I think the term is, is misused here. It means that there's a group. I think mafia would be a better term for it because it sounds like they are entrenched in the Vatican. Uh, and uh, now the Italian newspapers claim that it is a group of, of homosexuals who know of the homosexual sins of various important people in the Curia and that they uh, blackmail... Uh, in such a way that if they don't get what they want, that they will out these people and denounce them as as homosexuals. Uh, uh, that's what the Italian newspapers claim. But you know, Italian newspapers have not been known, you know, for for accuracy in the past. But it sounds plausible because there were a few days after that came out, 
Bergoglio made some comment to the effect that, well, it's all right that they're homosexuals, but it's the way in which they go about what they want. That's what's evil about them. He made a clarification of it a few days later. I don't know if people caught that, but I saw that. Where, So it sounds like it, that's true. I mean, what else are they doing? How do you have a lobby, an evil lobby? And if he's saying, well, it's fine that they're homosexuals, uh, well, what's evil about them is, uh, well, what they're doing, how they're going about it. So I, I think it gives certain credence to the Italian newspapers. Uh, so, I mean, but to think that the Curia of Rome, which should be the center of goodness and holiness, justice and, and morality, the center of the Catholic Church, that there should, that should be a hotbed of moral perversion. I mean, just think about that fact. It, it, is, a, it is a nest of moral perversion. It's, it just turns the, the stomach and boggles the mind when, when we say that. And the, the other thing is, if he, he talks about it, uh, why doesn't he simply do something about it and fire people? If, if he's aware that this is a uh, that there is a mafia that's present, he knows who's involved. Uh, why not just get rid of them? Well, they might uh, talk. Yeah, but I mean, then you get rid of the people they talk about. Yes, that would be the next thing to do. You know, maybe they're talking about that. Maybe there's some people that you can't get rid of. Uh, it, it, well, the, you, you know, Benedict the Sixteenth has some free time. Maybe he could start a ministry to uh, to help you find um, Could be could be a new calling for him. Last last question on uh, on Bergoglio before you move on will be uh, Jean from Florida. Um, I think Jean's question is: Will Bergoglio continue to use the 1983 code? Will he give a new one? Is he going to? Tinker with the mask. Is that um, is that right, Jean? Is that did I represent your question well? Yes, that does. That is those are my two questions. Okay. I, I think everything is open. I mean, I think he's capable of anything. I don't see any reason for him to tinker with the canon law. I I, I could see him tinkering with the mask. Certainly, I don't think he cares enough about canon law, and I think the damage is already done in the canon law. But I could see. Uh, definitely some tinkering with the liturgy. I think he's a loose canon, and he's capable of anything. Uh, my thought of canon law is that he, because he's a loose canon, uh, he would tinker with some of the canons, uh, <laughs> if I can use that in two in two different ways. Because uh, he has he has crazy ideas, and uh, I'm sure that there's some uh, provisions in the new code that he finds galling and insupportable because they don't reflect his um, uh, particular view of the church as, as uh, you know, having everything to do with the poor. Mm-hmm. Or right. certain canons maybe that he views as, as so oppressive. So, well, maybe why could you not have deaconesses? Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, yes. Uh, yes. why could you not have something like that? Uh, I uh, I think that there are. Uh, it is possible that he could uh, tinker with some of those. Mm-hmm. And the liturgy, uh, I don't think he really uh, cares all that much about it. That uh, I don't think that he cares enough really to change it. Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question, Gene? Yes. 
Thank you very much. I was afraid you'd say that. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for oh, your call. I think I, I think it's I think it's realistic though, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I think I, I think I, I we definitely know he's not interested in Paco Bell's canon in D. You wouldn't want to be some Baroque <laughs> prince living in a Baroque palace listening to Baroque music. Mm-hmm. That would probably be the the, the worst thing. Uh, for those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis uh, with His Excellency Bishop Donald Panborn uh, from Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, joined with uh, joined by Father Anthony Chicada, singer to the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and I think that will bring it to a close for now our analysis, very brief analysis of the very brief first 100 days of uh, Francis, the newest claimant to uh, post-Vatican II papacies. I think we're going to pivot now and start to talk about uh, the NSA spying and other other spying issues here in the United States related to our government. And I suppose we can take one step back from that and make sure that we correct the American con- the associated with American conservatism idea that government is evil uh, in and of itself. Is that a Catholic notion, Your Excellency? Absolutely not. Uh, Government is a representative of God and uh, as a legitimate lawmaker and makes laws as the representative of God. Uh, To see it as an evil actually comes from 18th century liberalism. It comes from Rousseau who saw man's ideal state as one uh, in which he runs naked in the forest, and as society and law as something restrictive and, and evil, and therefore should, have a, uh, should take a minimum role in, in, in human life, and that uh, the ideal is that people have uh, the least law possible, uh, and um, that that's, that comes straight from 18th century anti-Catholic thinking. Now, there should be as much law as there needs to be in order to assure the common good. That's what the Catholic Church would say. Uh, but uh, certainly the Catholic Church, on the other hand, is against socialistic regimes and totalitarian regimes that invade and which uh, want to uh, direct every part of your life. That idea of the all-powerful, socialistic, liberal government also comes from 18th century anti-Catholic thinking. Uh, so that, that's, you know, that said, uh, we could move on. Well, so if we accept the fact that government is in, in and of itself not evil, but something that is part of the structure of how we live our lives, is it appropriate for the government to be in loco parentis, that it can spy on us for our own good? Is that a fair Absolutely statement? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, 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 no. No, the, according to Catholic principles, the government must respect all of the institutions that are below it. That is, it must respect the, uh, the family and the privacy of the family and the authority of the family, which is in the father and the husband. It must respect businesses and corporations and relationships of that nature. Uh, it must, uh, in our country, it must respect the government of the states. Uh, the, in other words, the highest government should be making laws which regard, uh, first of all, the fewest laws, and only those which regard the most universal aspects of life. 
you know, if you look at the Constitution of the United States, essentially the United States government was empowered to run the military, run the post office, and run the foreign policy. And the rest of it was up to the states. And in that sense, it was well-structured, and that is that the central government, which is really out of touch with local realities, uh, should be you know, making these just sort of uh, abstract and, and very universal laws which pertain to the entire nation, but should not be reaching into the family uh, with cameras and, and and with recorders, uh, you know, to see what you're doing and what you're thinking today. That that is totally socialistic. It is liberal. It comes from again 18th century liberal political thinking, which gave us the French Revolution. So, Your Excellency, could uh, would you say uh, characterize this at least in your reading as the, the Catholic notion is more subsidiarity? Yes, is that that's what they the talk term about for it. Yeah. That whatever can be accomplished at the lower level should be accomplished there. That the higher level should not trespass against the lower level of government. So, so you're actually your county government, your local government, is really in in that system much more important than the government in Washington. And that's the way it was in the Middle Ages. People were much more concerned about their local prince or their local lord or you know, local life than they were about some king in Paris or you know where's Paris. <laughs> he would be concerned about you know the the general problems of the kingdom or getting a crusade going or you know but there was not this this invasive reach into your home by by central government no that, that's a new thing and of course it's made possible by all of the new technology more and more possible by the new technology if it is only also, uh, I think part of the the uh, reasoning to the the respect for the institutions at uh, a lower level is necessarily uh, these these institutions are uh, going to be more connected with the needs of their members, and as they uh, if they give away their their rights or if their rights are, are taken away and forced up at a, a up to a higher level, it's going to be uh, the, your government is going to be. Uh, less res responsive to the needs of these, these lower institutions, and people are going to be harmed by it. Yes, like the Department of Education. Somebody in Washington is deciding what is good for a child who lives in Fairbanks, Alaska. You know, that makes a lot of sense, that somebody who's, who's you know, like a third of the world away is figuring out what your child should be learning. It's so stupid, it's incredible. So, as you say, but, yeah, that's what we face everywhere. It's something that, that <laughs> we're dealing with via technology. Is that anything we can do anything about as Catholics? Or are we just supposed to sort of passively lament it? Well, I don't know what we can do about it. I mean, the unfortunately, you know, we're the only thing that we can do is is operate the ballot box. But I don't think that's going to have a lot of you know, positive effect over the next few decades. You know, uh, the 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 population of the United States is liberal, and we see that by the from the very fact that the Republicans, who represent at least in in principle the conservative wing of the population, have lost the popular vote in in the past five or six elections of president. 
the the country is is just sliding toward liberalism uh, more and more people are, are just becoming more and more liberal and and they like these things if you notice there was not much outrage over the fact there was no public outrage that the United States government was spying on its own citizens I mean did you see anything I mean, any any were there demonstrations in Washington or anything like that no no it just blew by and uh so I, I think that's indicative of the the condition the mental and and moral condition of the American people it, it frankly they're shot in my opinion I mean in a sense they're they're ruined I don't think there's much to hope for from them. I know it sounds very negative and depressing, but uh I think that they have been ruined because of the decades of liberalism that has been pumped into them from the time of Roosevelt. Roosevelt became a type of liberal god, and the the population fell in love with him and therefore fell in love with all of his ideas and principles and actions, which were appalling. And ever since, the country has been on a liberal slide, and it's uh, it's getting worse and worse as it goes along. Again, you know, I know I'm not uh, giving a really cheerful picture here, but I really don't see what we can do about it. I, I don't see any solution. Um, uh, and uh, well, 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 to be fair, Your Excellency, you're not known for your cheeriness. <laughs> <laughs> I know in my sermons I'm very cheery. Usually. Cheery. <laughs> you know that, that they're. They really feel good. Uh, I remember somebody, uh, I had to get up and, and say, I can't give a sermon today because I have laryngitis. And the comment after the Mass was, that was the first time that I came out of Mass feeling good about myself. <laughs> we, have a, we, have a question, we have a question on Twitter regarding what you just said, Your Excellency. Um, is a holy Roman emperor not part of the divine plan so that you can have one church and one temporal authority and so we won't have issues like this? Well, there is nothing in Revelation about one authority. As a matter of fact, the church was very, very hesitant about one authority in Europe. And that's why it didn't want the Habsburgs to be the single authority in Europe because it didn't want to be beholden to or have to deal with a single authority that controlled everything practically in the world. And this is when there was a lot of colonialism and they had huge empires. So in certain cases, it favored people who were less worthy in order to preserve a variety of families in these kingdoms so that it would not be uh, hooked up necessarily with one. And we saw that problem, especially in the Napoleonic era, where Napoleon became essentially the king of Europe, the emperor of Europe. And the church suffered a great deal because he, he dictated terrible terms to the church. Uh, so the church likes to see variety, uh, actually, in order to preserve its own freedom. You can uh, see reflected there, too, is that the church understands uh, weakness of human nature and that if you uh, allow one person or one institution to have all of this civil authority and all of this uh, power, it's very easy for that uh, institution or and the people who run it to become uh, uh, corrupt and uh, be, 
because of their their sinful nature, because of the effects of original sin, and do an awful lot of of damage. Is there anything else that um, either your Excellency or Father would like to say about, let's say, the issue of spying in general? Um, I think the the last question I, I want to ask about this is how the whole idea of WikiLeaks and um, the leaking of documents relates to um, the Catholic notion of uh, proper submittance to authority. When you when you think about leaking national security documents, but those documents are regarding a just war uh, or information about an unjust war, is there is there a hierarchy of values that a Catholic has to examine when they're looking at the moral question of well we're leaking documents but it's from a government that is executing civilians what how does the Catholic look at that to make a moral judgment? Well, I think we should discuss first the notion of secrecy and the right to secret uh, before we can you know you're asking the the final question we should be asking questions before that. Uh, there is a, a natural right to secrecy. There are certain things that we say and do uh, which are by their very nature secret and should be always kept secret by anybody who finds out about them. Now, for example, I would say that the diplomatic world needs to be able to converse in secret and that it was wrong for that WikiLeaks character to divulge diplomatic conversations. I mean, this happens in all human affairs, where you have to have a private conversation with people in order to broker a deal or to... There has to be a time when you are talking to someone who is going to keep a secret. For him to divulge all of those things, I think, was wrong, because those things are, by their very nature, secret. Uh, So I, I would separate the case of the WikiLeaks uh, person from the Snowden person who uh, blew the whistle on the spying. I think that's a whole other issue. Uh, I, my opinion, uh, I think it was wrong for the, uh, the, um, the WikiLeaks, I forget his name, WikiLeaks person to divulge those things. Yes, uh, I, I think that was wrong because those things are by nature secret. Uh, the also, you know, to take into your own hand, your own hands and, and uh, to act on it in such a way uh, as to say this war is immoral as far as I'm concerned, to, to make that judgment in such a way that you cross into um, things that are by their very nature criminal and immoral, I, I don't think that can be justified in any way. I mean, you can think all you want that a, a war is immoral, but to... Uh, do things that are uh, criminal and I would say immoral uh, is uh, I, I, it cannot be justified in any way, as far as I'm concerned. The way that you're phrasing it, but as far as the, the the larger issue than the the more uh, current one, the question of uh, the Snowden and exactly what he did. Uh, there seems to be certainly a proportionate reason for him revealing that, uh, because the government is is up to no good about its, uh, uh, you know, in, in terms of interfering in the lives of its citizens. It's it's using the um, this this high technology to uh, sort of breach our lives 
and uh, it, it gets this uh, terrific amount of uh, information from data mining and from business and marketing. And these companies, in turn, that, that gather this information, Google and, and so on, regard each man as a potential profit center. So, and it was our, our government that allowed and that continues to allow outfits like Google to run wild and to gather this information precisely because these outfits have financial clout. Uh, and our, our, our Congress will not restrain them from uh, gathering all of this, this information about us. So, in effect, from the commercial point of view, the we're not allowed to have the privacy that we really should. And instead of having laws with uh, real teeth, all of this data collection is uh, is allowed because there's a, a profit motive involved. And our lawmakers, because they're so, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, are so far away from us uh, and involved in this, this giant federal government uh, that... They're allowed to. They allow these companies to get away with it for their own interests, and then the government, uh, national security agency, uh, profits from this this uh, uh, harvest of data mining, and uh, uh, it makes the situation even worse. So what you end up with is uh, there's this enormous tool of oppression in the hand of the government and in the hand of these these business corporations and someday it is going to really come back and do some damage see the only time that government has a right to investigate to let's say spy on people is where you have a a true suspicion of evil doing in that case yes the police have to look at you and track you and do things that are necessary in order to prevent you from doing those things. But to spy on the general population is is absolutely evil. Uh, I mean, there are certain things that are by their very nature private. For example, suppose somebody is calling a psychiatrist often. Now, that reveals that that person might have psychological problems, or suppose they're calling an oncologist that might reveal that they have they have cancer. Now that you could track only from the phone calls. You don't even have to listen to the conversations. You just see repeated phone calls to a psychiatrist or to an oncologist or some other person, or even uh, if a man is carrying on an affair. I mean, as bad as that is, it still is should not be public knowledge. It should it is not the business of the government to, to know that. And that's very, very dangerous that the government would assume to be able to track your your life uh, in matters that are very private. Uh, and I don't believe for a minute that they're not hacking the, the conversations and they're not hacking your emails. I don't believe that for a single moment. Uh, I think that they are getting into all of those things and, and, and uh, when they want to. Uh, and given the uh, the the general liberal trend and the general arrogance of liberals now and their hatred for any sort of traditional norms of morality, uh, I think that uh, in 10 or 20 years you could see the profiling 
of people like us as fundamentalists and as extremists and and that our you know all of our phone calls will be hacked and we'll be tracked and uh, I, I think that's certain in the future because uh, I don't see anything to stop it. It's so, gen- it, generally it speaking, in uh, law enforcement, uh, so-called, if there is a technology that they're permitted to use, that cops are permitted to use, they're going to use it because it makes it more convenient for them. Uh, it's you know more time in the donut shop. So uh, you have. Uh, these uh, now you have these uh, closed circuit uh, cameras everywhere. As England is covered with closed circuit uh, TV cameras and, and with surveillance. And I even ran across that uh, here, uh, talking with a woman from the parish last week in in Sharonville, which is this kind of small uh, town that our church was originally located. This woman was in a car accident, and so she went to the cops to report it and so on. And the uh, cops in Sharonville, a relatively small town, said, Oh, yeah, uh, you know, we see that you don't, uh, that you really don't go out of the town very much, that you just sort of uh, uh, drive down to Evendale. And she said, Well, how in the world do you know that? And they said, Well, we have these, these cameras. Uh, on this this intersection at uh, on uh, Creek Road and um, Reading Road, and uh, it records all of the uh, license plates of the people who pass through it. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know we uh, know that you don't spend that much, uh, that you generally don't go out of town. So she was you know uh, shocked to discover mm-hmm. something like this. But this multiply this by. Um, uh, you know, all the other uh, towns that have the possibility to have this technology, maybe they get a subsidy, you know, under from uh, the TSA, you know, for, for suppressing terrorism. And uh, it's, it's, it's uh, truly a, uh, uh, you know, like a terrible prospect that everything you do is, uh, is being tracked. Mm-hmm. The government even wants, they want to do that now with... Um, uh, DNA testing, that um, if you are arrested in some jurisdictions, the uh, cops will insist on taking your DNA and have the right to do that, and it goes into the national database and eventually will end up with the FBI. And so this is this is more tracking. Mm-hmm. So it's it's all of these, these means of acquiring uh, information uh, about people and tracking them, and it's a uh, it's a, a, a tool of oppression. You can see that uh, you know the arrogance of uh, the government, and they always uh, um, try to candy coat it in some sort of way to say that it's for your protection. Mm-hmm. It's always for your protection, and that if you don't have anything to hide, well, you shouldn't be afraid of all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But that again goes back to the idea of the supremacy of this this uh, big government over everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned terrorism. All of this was enacted uh, in back in 2002, I think it was, in the Patriot Act. So yeah. when I heard about it, you know, I thought, well, this is nothing new. I remember reading about this back in 2002 or thereabout, mm-hmm. maybe 2001 even. Uh, and uh, it was Bush that put it through. And, yeah. you know, reflecting upon it, I thought, you know, really the terrorists have won the day because they have destroyed our way of life. 
they they gave an opportunity to the big government fanatics to destroy our way of life. If if probably they would not have had the opportunity, the the big government fanatics, to do this if 9/11 had not taken place. They they have put in so much that has altered the American way of life, which always prided itself on individual freedoms. They destroyed it. And what came down in 9-11 was not only those two buildings, but also the entire American mentality of privacy and personal freedoms. They won. They, they, have, uh, they have been victorious. And, you know, historically, terrorists have always gotten their way, uh, have always been victorious. Uh, and they have always controlled big powers by their little acts, the relatively little acts of terrorism, in comparison to the size of the power. Uh, so it's, I think that's an important, uh, and it's only going to get worse. What's going to stop this? I mean, here a Republican president put it in. I mean, so are we going to look to the Republican Party to stop it? Certainly not. Well, for anyone from the government who's listening to our show or any of you who are joining us for the first time, um, you are listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis. Our guest today is Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn from Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Anthony Tricotta of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. I'm Stephen Heiner, your host, and uh, the first part of our show we were discussing the first 100 days of Francis Bergoglio, the current claimant to the post-Vatican II Church. And for the last half hour or so, we've been discussing the issues of privacy within the structure of a government and how a Catholic looks at these issues, not just from how it, how he or she views the government, but what those governments' responsibilities are. I'd like to pivot now towards our last topic, Your Excellency and Father, if I might, on today's show, and if we have some extra time, we'll open up the phones for some questions on any of our topics uh, today, or, or if you're up for it, any any questions in general. I know people like to have the opportunity to talk to you when they can. And that's on the end of life and euthanasia. And I think while we can assume that a lot of our audience is Catholic, um, we know that we have some Novus Ordo Catholics and even some non-Catholics who listen to our show, so it might bear discussing what euthanasia is and what the church's traditional teaching has and continues to be on euthanasia before discussing some of the other issues. So, Your Excellency, Your Father, would you like to take a crack at that? Yes, the, all Catholic theologians distinguish between positive euthanasia and negative euthanasia. Positive euthanasia is to do something which is direct in order to uh, take the life of some person who usually is suffering or is terminal. I mean, there's usually some reason for it. That's effectively to give them an injection or to do some other thing, whether it causes sudden death or gradual death. That's positive euthanasia, and it's condemned, it's murder. There's really no discussion about that. Uh, I think that where there's discussion is in what is known as negative euthanasia, and that is to deprive someone of the ordinary means of keeping them alive, uh, feeding them or uh, nursing them in some way, uh, to, so that you're not actually giving them a lethal injection, but you're doing things that uh, that they are entitled to uh, by just nature 
uh, and uh, which will bring upon their death. If you never gave somebody a drink of water, for example, they, they will dehydrate. That's negative euthanasia. Now, of course, to 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 purposely deprive someone, uh, uh, a healthy person, uh, of the normal um, needs for life is also murder. It's it's euthanasia, and it's condemned by the church. The discussion is where the uh, uh, extraordinary means and ordinary means of preserving one's life come into being because we are obliged to take ordinary means to preserve our lives and to preserve the lives of those whom we're taking care of. But we're not obliged to use extraordinary means to preserve our own lives or the lives of those whom we're taking care of. So... And there's no discussion about that distinction. The discussion is the application of what is ordinary and what is extraordinary. And that has caused you know, a great deal of uh, uh, turmoil among traditionally-minded people. Uh, uh, unnecessarily so, I think, but nevertheless it has. So that's where the discussion should go. <clears throat> turmoil. Father Chikata, have you dealt with any turmoil regarding these issues from traditional-minded people? <laughs> I seem to recall some in the distant past, yes. Uh, there was the um, uh, case of, the famous case, of course, of Terry Schiavo. And um, the people, uh, m- many people remember her particular uh, situation. She had um, a number of medical problems, and she was in a state where she had to uh, be cared for by other people. So I was uh, asked about uh, this particular controversy, and it, uh, the, the uh, question arose in the popular press, different um, uh, pro-life people and different people on the political right uh, in the United States uh, started saying that, uh, you know, she absolutely, uh, that absolutely everything in effect should have to be done for her. And so I was asked about the issue of uh, ordinary means and uh, extraordinary means. And uh, I wrote a little article about it that was printed in uh, The Remnant and quoted some Catholic theologians on it. One of it, uh, the, the first Catholic moral theologian who talked about it, was uh, a theologian named Victoria. And he came up uh, with this, this idea, and he said that you're not held to employ all the means necessary to conserve life, but it's uh, sufficient that uh, you uh, apply, employ the means that are intended for this purpose and that are sort of fitting to this goal. And then I quoted Pius Twelfth on it. Well, this caused a uh, uh, bit of a controversy everywhere in the United States, and the different uh, charges were uh, traded back and forth over this. Uh, as to exactly the, p- the position I took, but it, it illustrates, I think, very uh, clearly that the dispute in a lot of times is over the application of the general principles, what Bishop Sanborn said in the uh, beginning. And extraordinary means, Pius XII said, was uh, uh, the, that was the means that involved any grave burden to oneself or one's uh, or another person, and that was the issue here. Mm-hmm. For example, if you have you know a person that's a hundred years old living on a respirator and cannot breathe by himself, 
if the respirator were taken away, uh, he would cease breathing within a minute or two. Uh, is that ordinary means or extraordinary means of keeping somebody alive? Uh, so now I would say that's certainly extraordinary because one of the criteria of extraordinary is that there is little chance of success. That is, the treatment given has little chance of restoring someone to health. In such a case, you are simply keeping a cadaver, what is a, effectively a cadaver, because even the principle of life is already gone, and that's something to distinguish, too. Uh, the, uh, the, you're, you're keeping the mechanics of life going, but you're, you're not really curing anybody. Uh, so that would be a, a case of what is, to me, clearly extraordinary means. But there are some who would say, oh, no, no, you have to... Uh, keep these people going, and uh, there are hospitals that have a whole wards of people on respirators because they can't unplug them uh, by law or you know by the will of the family. And and these people could go on for a long, long time, and all at the public expense you know, on Medicare uh, or some other form of of public expense in many cases. You know, so it. it Really, uh, that is another uh, principle that is enunciated by theologians is that if the cost is too high, if the care is too costly, which is certainly a big issue today when, you know, an appendectomy is between twenty and 25000 for example, I mean, to keep someone going for a long, long time uh, is, can be extremely expensive and ex- an excessive burden. It could be an excessive burden on time as well, not only in money, but in time, where you have to spend so much time with the sick person that you can't spend time at your job or with your family or anything else. So these are, are considerations which perhaps the average layperson doesn't know. Uh, there is such a reaction to abortion and such an attachment to pro-life, which is laudable, that they tend to associate this with the pro-life movement uh, and and see uh, this as as something that that is a type of absolute that that uh and and the 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 application of these principles is a judgment call uh, that is somebody decides uh somebody responsible or a group of persons decide that this is extraordinary or ordinary and really there should not be uh opposition on this you could say well i think you know that he's wrong i think that's ordinary and somebody else might say no i think it's extraordinary but that doesn't mean that you have to uh put up the battle flags the difficulty is in the the public arena with uh, issues like this is as bishop sanborn uh mentioned is the association on the part of pro-life uh people people who identify themselves as, as pro-life and who are against abortion and so on uh, where while one is absolutely against abortion, uh, they uh, tend to uh, identify this the idea of, of life as like the supreme good. And uh, uh, no matter how old, uh, let us say, a person is, no matter what you have to do to, uh, what lengths you have to do to uh, maintain this. And this was a... Um, uh, you know, as Bishop Sanborn said, it's a question of the application of uh, these moral principles. The tendency in the public 
forum with something like this, you know, when you get a rush going on the radio and uh, uh, people getting all agitated about it, is to uh, turn uh, your judgment into an absolute and to say that, well, uh, you know, I know this particular case and it's absolutely a sin in it. Uh, It would be sinful to do this and... What ended up in the Shivo case is people ended up getting uh, riled up about it and wanting to make that judgment. And, uh, you know, it all depends on the actual facts of the case and and how you apply the principles. Yes, and as I said, you also have to distinguish between life functions and the principle of life. You have life when you have a soul, which is what operates the functions but you can artificially operate the functions by means of machines i was told by a doctor that you can cut off somebody's head today and keep the rest of the body going on machines now if that is not extraordinary i don't know what is and what you're doing is that you're keeping those organs alive essentially by the blood flow by the oxygen flow but there is no principle of life in the body which would keep those things going if you detach the machines. In other words, that body is really dead. But people don't understand that. They, they see body functions and they think, well, that person is still alive. No, the soul is gone because the soul is the principle of those functions, that from which those functions flow. But you can do the effects of the soul artificially, just as what happens in open-heart surgery. They pick the heart right out of the body. And they keep it going artificially by all of those those machines, you know. So you can keep the life functions going, but the in the body there's a principle of life, and that is the soul. If the soul is not there, once you unplug that whatever it is, the body is going. As soon as those things wind down, as soon as the oxygen disappears, the body is just going to start corrupting. Well. Yeah, there is a whole spectrum, too, of considerations when you talk about uh, end-of-life issues and extraordinary means and so on. Uh, the, uh, so many different things to look at and so many things to determine in terms of, as Bishop Sanborn said, the success of it, the uh, uh, age of the person involved, his actual medical condition, uh, mm-hmm. and so on. It's uh, These are very, very comple- complex issues that uh, people have to deal with following uh, as best they can with advice one hopes from a Catholic priest, the the, uh, moral principles that the Church lays down. Another reason for uh, extraordinary means that the theologians give are what they call objectionable aspects. For example, if, if the cure is too far away, if the hospital is too far away, or if something would involve great pain, unbearable pain, that's considered extraordinary, and that could vary in people. A young person might be able to bear up, an old person cannot. So it could be ordinary for the young person, extraordinary for the old person. The very same procedure. For those of you who I, have I questions very... for Father or His Excellency on this, you can. we're in the final part of our show, so if you'd like to get a question in, you can call us at 949 949- Two seven two nine four one seven. Again, that's nine four nine two seven two nine four one seven. Or you can go to twitter.com and mention at True Restoration in your question, and it will show up in our feed, and we'll 
ask your question. Sorry to interrupt, Father. Please go ahead. Oh, uh, I was going to say that actually what prompted me to suggest this as a, a topic for discussion tonight was uh, an article that uh, I read uh, about a, a doctor named uh, Volandes, Angela Volandes. And he's, um, I don't know, maybe 41, something like that. And he, he was interested in medicine. He was also interested in film. And he took a year off from, from medical school to actually to study how to make films. He thought it would be like a nice hobby and a nice break for it. Well, he was doing, eventually became a doctor and was doing his, his residency. And there was a, a woman who came to him who was a, a college professor, and she had a terminal condition. And she was, um, she was older, and she asked him, um, you know, what kind of care she should uh, insist on. And so he described everything to her and asked her, uh, you know, kind of what level of care uh, she wanted. He asked her if she wanted CPR, you know, uh, cardiopulmonary recitation, if her heart stopped beating. And so he described all of that, and he said, let's go up to the ICU. The, so they went up to the ICU and um, were walking through, and actually there was a code blue that was called, where the uh, CPR team comes and tries to uh, revive the person. So they, they watched this, and the woman watched it. And, of course, if you've ever seen one of those, it's quite a... Um, it's quite an event. There's all this pounding on your chest and hitting you with electrical paddles and and uh, giving you needles and so on. When they got back to the examination room where they'd been talking, the uh, woman told the doctor that, uh, you know, I understood what you told me about this before. I'm a professor of English. I just really didn't know what you actually meant by it. And it's uh, seeing this particular uh, type of medical procedure is not what I imagined. It's not what I saw on TV. So mm-hmm. ha- having a terminal condition, having actually witnessed something like this, uh, she decided that she'd simply go to hospice care. She wouldn't take anything, any traumatic sort of uh, treatment like this. So this got the doctor thinking a little bit about, um, you know, different issues in medical care where, uh, uh, sometimes people, if they realized what it was going to be, would actually say that it was too much because the the, the hospitals have uh, an inclination to go toward, I guess, a sort of a maximalism, uh, even if you're going to die anyway. So this, this uh, doctor made a series of, of uh, videos, short videos, describing different treatment options for people with, with terminal conditions. And uh, as, as a way of informing people as to exactly what went on. And, you know, you have the suspicion, certainly, that uh, if you saw, uh, if you were uh, the person who had a medical condition like this and you saw what was actually going to go on with you, you would probably say it's uh, best to leave things alone. And uh, I thought that it was a very interesting approach where you give people this choice in advance. Mm-hmm. 
Do you think, Your Excellency, Your Father, that Catholic families should have some sort of mecha legal mechanism in place for these issues so that the, the spouses are informed and prepared for these sorts of uh, decisions? Absolutely, because the hospital in most states will default to doing the CPR. So that means your loved one will be essentially attacked by a group of nurses and doctors. The chest will be pounded brutally because they don't want to be sued that in order to give your your grandma you know a few extra moments of life uh they have to beat her up essentially uh and that's all they'll you'll get out of it is that she she makes a you know a few more hours of life out of it it it's crazy it's absolutely insane and it's brutal uh and uh, i think that people should uh take the means to refuse all of that stuff and leave the decision of what care should be given uh, in very responsible people, uh, even priests, uh, to to make the decision about uh, what care should be given. Because uh, today there are so many extraordinary means. There's so many ways of keeping people alive that were not around 50 years ago. Uh, and as I said, you could keep a, a headless cadaver alive. Uh, to buy with, and in the future, it's going to to uh, you know be more developed, and and more things will be possible. And uh, yes, I do think that people should uh, make those decisions and put them in documents, legal documents. And it's it's not that hard to do uh, because now in uh, many states, uh, these uh, type of um, uh, medical powers of attorney and, and uh, descriptions of what you want are have been formulated by doctors or by lawyers uh, and put online. And sometimes you can simply download the document and it will give you an array of options in terms of um, what your wishes are as to how much um, you want in the way of, of uh, extraordinary means. And uh, the in my experience in the states where i've i've dealt with them these uh, uh there is uh there's a series of options that you can use that you know are completely uh, in accord with the general catholic moral principles for uh medical emergencies so i would encourage people especially you know uh, uh, husbands and wives to uh, to do that to investigate that We have a question coming in from email, and I'm not sure I'm understanding it correctly, but the question is um, if a hospice patient, for example, has been uh, has been drugged so that they, they're not able to uh, receive communion or confess, um, is there, should they be removed from that drug so that they do have the ability to confess? I think, I think that's the question. Yeah, that is a separate question from what we're talking. Excuse me, that's a separate question from what we're talking about. But yes, uh, it is. uh, They should be removed from those drugs so that they can confess and receive Holy Communion and do everything necessary to make a good death. Saint Thomas Aquinas said the most important thing in life is a good death, and you don't want to be essentially drunk for the most important thing in life. I don't think. And that's what those drugs are actually making you worse than drunk. Uh, in the, you're facing death in a, in a state of, of drunkenness. Uh, nobody wants to do that. It's actually immoral. I've seen uh, theologians comment on it. It's immoral mm-hmm. to do that. 
So the answer is well, that you have them taken off uh, and uh, you know give them an opportunity to uh, confess and to receive the Eucharist and with. Uh, uh, and you know if, if it hasn't been done already uh, to receive the last rites when they're um, when they're conscious as well. Um, the last last point I want to make on this, Your Excellency and Father, before I I, uh, I let you go for this evening, relates to this hospice question and how culture has changed. Bishop Sanborn said on more than one occasion that culture is such an important influence, not just on adults, but on children particularly, and that's why it's so important to to watch that. And I think about how the culture has changed in the United States and even how it's changed in Asia with generational homes, and that we as a society are far more likely to send an older person in our family off to a nursing home or off to hospice care. Is this something that we perhaps, not just as traditional Catholics, not just as Catholics, not just as a society, are taking too lightly, or is this something that perhaps makes more sense given the medical medical care that some people need to have these days? Well, well you can well, actually get uh, uh, two types of, of hospice care. You can... Uh, uh, get it uh, in one of these institutions themselves or sometimes at home. Uh, it uh, depends on a whole host of factors, you know, regarding your your, your medical condition. And um, it is, um, uh, you know, ideally, I guess, it, it, it's much better to uh, be cared for at home, uh, you know, uh, with your family at the last hours of, uh, of your life. But uh, it's... Uh, the hospice, in my experience with the hospices, is that generally they're quite good uh, about uh, the religious issues and about having allowing people to be there um, all the time uh, to uh, spend time with the person who's dying, to say prayers, and so on. So I don't think that it's uh, the way kind of that it's 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 worked out has. Um, I don't think it's really worked out adversely in terms of caring for you at the end of your life, because you can be there. I would also say that our situation today is not comparable to what it was, say, 100 or even 50 years ago. People commonly died in their 60s and in their 70s from things that were untreatable, like blood pressure, high blood pressure, and and uh, heart conditions. Uh, I mean, Roosevelt had high blood pressure, and his doctors told him, in the midst of World War II, to take it easy. You know, to just just work in the morning and then take it easy in the afternoon. That was the cure for high blood pressure in those days. And of course, he died in his 60s uh, from a stroke. Uh, so the the uh, problem, quote-unquote, today is that people are being cured of those things, treated for those things, and their bodies are living well into their 90s, but their minds are not. And so there, there is a care, a whole other world of care that is opening up, and that is of people who can't do for themselves, they can't cook for themselves, or even use the bathroom for themselves, or various other uh, normal things who are living well into their 90s, and, and so, uh, you know, home care may not even be possible for those people. Mm. So I don't think it's comparable. I think uh, that's, yes, I think, 
I think you're correct on that, Your Excellency. It really isn't. One of the other things that one can say positively about modern medicine is, is uh, when I was in the seminary, I used to visit nursing homes, and the um, situation in the nursing home level of care was pretty grim and pretty primitive, even in places that were pretty good. But because of the situation that you mentioned, Your Excellency, about people living longer and uh, advances in, in, in science, now the, uh, that has all changed for uh, many instances, in my experience, for uh, nursing home care. And that uh, it, it, it seems that in terms of long-term care for older people, that medicine has really caught up with that and is far, far better than it was 50 years ago. Yes. So, But in, in many cases, it might be even physically impossible to take care of old people at home. Sure. Yeah. All right, we're going to take one last call, Your Excellency and Father, and it's from a, a gentleman in New Hampshire uh, who wants to circle back to um, His Excellency's comment on Rousseau leading to big government. Um, then I think you wanted a bit more of an explanation from His Excellency on that. Is that right? Yes. Hi, and thanks for taking my call. Uh, yes, you're talking about uh, invasive government and the spying scandal and about Rousseau and liberalism. And uh, I just wonder if you could uh, break that down a little bit uh, more and how we got here from there. Sure. Uh, Rousseau, uh, in his social contract, says that the ideal state of man is uh, uh, that w uh, that he live in a case in a place of no society, that uh, no law, and that um, he have a um, uh, essentially uh, even use the example of running naked in the forest, uh, and uh, that society and law are a corruption of human beings. And that, uh, that gradually took place and all of this aristocracy and this, all of the 18th century world was one big corruption. And that human beings have to go back to the, their original state of being totally free. And uh, then he developed the idea that these free people come together in a social contract, that is, in a... Uh, they manifest their liberty by a type of communal liberty, which they accomplish by means of majority rule. So, therefore, the entire uh, society must conform to whatever the majority thinks. And the, this be, uh, creates a huge state, because the only thing that exists in that system is the individual and the state the free individual, and the state. There is nothing in between. There is no family, there is family structure. The, the father of the family is just another individual, just like his children are and like his wife is. He has no position. The, the prostitute is as much a, 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 an individual to be heard as, as a cardinal, for example. Uh, the, uh, it, everything is leveled. Everything is the same. Uh, all you have is a collection of individuals and majority rules. That is the Rousseauvian state, the social contract state. And that ideal, so to speak, uh, uh, was 
put into practice by the French Revolution and was adopted by all of the um, uh, uh, governments of the 19th century. It infected the minds of people, and that's precisely what we have arrived at. The um, so the uh, you see the, the the development of it in the 19th century in the United States, the gradual increase of the power in Washington and the crushing of the states' rights and the crushing again of uh, individual institutions. It, it took on a tremendous progress under Roosevelt. Roosevelt was one of the most invasive persons. Uh, he would order wiretaps on whomever he pleased. He had no regard for the law. He would just tell somebody to put a wiretap on this one or that one if he didn't like him. Uh, the, the idea of the huge invasive government was crystallized by Roosevelt, and, and we're still living under, under his regime, essentially. I, I don't know if that answers your question. I, I could go on with more detail if you want. Well, no, that, that answer, it, it's just ironic that what started out as this attempt to have total freedom ends up with uh, you know, a totalitarian state, the, the opposite of what they you know, said they wanted. Yes, well, in other words, running naked in the forest really doesn't work because <laughs> we have to, you know, uh, we're going to trespass one against another uh, and there has to be property and, you know, like everybody knows and, and so therefore there has to be some form of law. But for him, that law it has to come from below, has to come from a collection of free individuals and uh, not from any sort of pre-existing God-given institutions. That, that to him is anathema. Right, right. So it's really really no order, like you're saying, nothing in between. You know, no, it, society is a big collection of marbles. Yeah. yeah. All equal. Yeah. Very interesting. Thank that, you very much. Appreciate that answer. Thanks. thanks for thanks for calling in. And I would say we probably lost our marbles these days, your excellency. <laughs> yeah, now that I would expect from Father Chicata. Yeah, yes, right. that, that's You've been Father spending Chikata. too much time with me, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, no, too 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 many interviews, too too much correspondence, and I, I always put this down like. Well, for those of you who are just tuning in now, we are at the tail end of our show, Clerical Conversations on the Crisis, um, with our guest, His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan, of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Anthony Chicago, St. Richard the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Uh, our topics today have included Bergoglio's first 100 days, uh, a brief analysis. We've talked about spying and the role of government in that spying. And the last part of our show was talking about end-of-life issues, euthanasia, and certain practical considerations that Catholics, traditional Catholics, or frankly anyone, should take into account when looking at end-of-life issues, and I think perhaps maybe the most important quote from today's, um, from today's show is not uh, that um, the church must decrease and Christ must increase, but rather that... I think it's that, that we've uh, lost our marbles. I think that was the most profound <laughs> thing that was said today. <laughs> the most profound things I thought of today that, that His Excellency brought out was St. Thomas... Um, saying that the most important thing in life is a good death, and I think that uh, that's a very profound thing. That's a way to, to guide every morning. Um, yes. if, you'd, if you'd like to uh, follow um, some of what His Excellency is doing down in Florida, as I alluded to, you can get his newsletter, which is 
sometimes double-sized or triple-sized based on uh, the topic. Uh, all you have to do is be a benefactor for the seminary in the amount of, well, we say 75, but today we're going to run a special that you have to contribute at least $100 to <laughs> receive that newsletter. Uh, you can do that by uh, sending a check, um, any amount, to Most Holy Trinity Seminary, 1000 Spring Lake Highway, Brooksville, Florida, 34602. Again, that's 1000 Spring Lake Highway, Brooksville, Florida, 34602. You can make it out to cash if you'd like. Um, then, uh, or Most Holy Trinity Seminary. Uh, yeah. The other... The other uh, place that you will want to look at to see what Father Chicago is doing is at sggresources.org, and there you'll find uh, work uh, both on the liturgy um, that Bishop Dolan is doing, and you'll find some interviews actually for sale. Uh, Father Chicago recently uh, had some interviews put onto DVD, and in- including questions on Pentecostalism, the new right of physical consecration and the work of human hands. And you can also see some of Father's work at youtube.com forward slash work of human hands. Um, again, Your Excellency, Father, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we appreciate the time you give us every month. And um, we covered a lot of great topics today and uh, I think informed a lot of people. Fantastic. Thank you, Stephen. Okay, thank and you. We'll, and we'll leave our listeners with uh, 2S Petrus from Palestrina. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.